Man. I'm gonna have to call Mike to start doing those. <laughs> to do the kids thing so that way you can answer the questions. <laughs> um thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Spectacular as always. Uh if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah nineteen. If you do not have your Bible, it'll be behind me on the screen. Um and just as a quick refresher, we've been going over this oracle concerning Egypt um, as we're in the midst of these different oracles against these different nations for all that they're doing and the bad things that they're doing um, and how they're kind of being nations that lead away from God rather than to God. And because of that, God sends his judgment upon them. Um, and so Egypt in particular, we saw how um, they relied on their religion, they relied on their wisdom, they relied on their material wealth and all these different things that were thinking, okay, we have power through these things. But the truth is, God just can simply take them away. So do they really have power if God can simply take them away? And the answer is, is no. They don't have any power because of that. Um, the only one who really does have power is God himself. And so now we're going to get into the rest of this oracle against Egypt. Um, and if you notice, maybe in your Bibles and even on the screen, it's a little bit different with the way it is because it, it goes from poetry to prose. Um, so because of that, you'll see. As for now, we'll go through and here again is Egypt down here, which is what we're talking about. Um, and we're not going to get into any more of the cities the way it was with Memphis or anything like that. Go ahead to the next one, Betsy. And then there's a kind of bigger picture of Egypt, um, upper and lower. And then go ahead one more, because today we're going to also talk about Ashdod, which is in Philistia. And you're wondering, okay, what's Ashdod got to do with Egypt? We're going to talk about it. It's going to be so much fun. I'm excited. Um, so with that, let's go to our verses. We're going to start with verse 16 and 17. In that day, the Egyptians will be like a woman and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. Um, so we continue chapter 19 with a change again from poetry to prose. We also notice how Isaiah continues with in that day. This phrase is used five times between verses 16 through 25 of this chapter, and it denotes either the end times event or a time when God takes particular action in world events. Um, and we see this when it comes to the prophet. Sometimes it's referring to, let's say, Christ in that day, and then Christ has come in that day it happened. Um, there are other times when he really specifically says, in that day, and it's a very noticeable, we know that happened in history. Other times, though, it's far in the future. So to answer your question, David, I don't know <laughs> um, when this is all happening. Um, still, we can think of the Exodus and we can think of the coming of Christ as two such events of in that day. But we can also think of like the kids were asking about um, end times when the new heaven and new earth comes. That's in that day when it comes. So regardless, though, we learn that the Egyptian men who in ancient cultures would be the warriors, the combatants, um, would be like women in fear. Um, now, I want to quote someone. I want to quote Oswald when he says, there are women come upon suddenly who know themselves to be defenseless, cowering in fear before the inevitable. They are this way because of the fear of the judgment of God which has come upon them. This is not to say that women are like naturally fearful. It's just a matter of that kind of a circumstance when a woman is in desperate straits um, and there's nothing she can do. That's how they are. It is no surprise then that their fear of God leads to fear of the land of Judah. 
This does not mean that they are afraid of the Judeans any more than during the Exodus they were afraid of the Israelites. Instead, it is that God of Judah causes them to fear because of the judgment which he brings against them. Um, And so because of this, the Lord has purposed something against them. It's this judgment which is coming against them. And because of what they're experiencing, it causes them to fear. Judgment causes fear. So with that, we go on to verse 18, the second in that day. In that day... There will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. So the second in that day deals with one of the more controversial verses in Isaiah. The problem stems from the term city of destruction. Some of the ancient texts have destruction while others have the word son. Why is this? Because the word in Hebrew, they're almost identical. The only thing that's separating them is a small space. Um, And because of that, some of the uh, copying that we have from them have destruction and some have the word son. It's one of those very few textual variances that have occurred in the scriptures. Um, Anyway, because of that, it leads to two most likely interpretations. If the word is translated as destruction... Then it means that there will be cities in Egypt which turn in repentance towards God. They will speak the tongue of Canaan because they have sworn allegiance to God. Yet one of the cities will face some kind of destruction, whether it means that their idols are going to be destroyed, or this, the fact that there is one of the five cities that ultimately comes to destruction because they refuse to repent. That's possible. Now the second interpretation rests on if the word means son. In this case, it implies that the five cities will turn toward God, just as with the previous interpretation. Instead of there being an exception, though, the city of the sun will be one of them. And this city would likely be Heliopolis, which was the center of religious worship for the god Ra. In this sense, then, even the main cultic site for Ra will turn and worship toward God. God defeats Ra. Which one makes more sense? Generally, I lean toward the latter. It seems more probable that in light of the judgment which has come upon them and in light of them turning toward God now, that even the religious centers would reject the gods and the idols that they had been turning to and would repent of those things and turn in faith toward the one true God, which is what we're actually seeing now. So if, if you want my interpretation, that's where I lean. In fact, I could be wrong about that. Um, and it's, it's not something that's going to change your overall theology, so... You. Like as in sun in the sky, star. Um, That sun, and because of that, that's why they think it's Heliopolis, because that is the sun city. Um, And that's, again, Ra is associated with the sun. He's the sun god. So it makes sense. So there's the technical thing I was talking about, Mike. If you want to do more research on that, I'll give you all the literature. (laughs) So now we'll continue with verse 19. In that day... There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. 
So this third in that day further shows this newfound relationship between God and the people of Egypt. Even in Egypt, there will be an altar and a pillar. Scholars note that this may reflect well the Abrahamic uh, people as Abraham built an altar to the Lord in gratitude and Jacob set up a pillar at Bethel. As such, Egypt joins in worshiping God in these ways, declaring themselves to be his. That they have turned toward God means that they receive the same benefits as God's chosen people. When they cry out for help against oppression, God will hear them. This is so very interesting as they were once the oppressors. Yet here we find their hearts turned toward God and God hearing them just as he heard his own people. Just as he delivered the Jewish people from Egypt, so he too will deliver Egypt from whatever persecution is happening against them. We now see how the covenant name of God for Judah and Israel is even used here. The Lord, Yahweh, will make himself known. And because of this, the Egyptians will know Yahweh, will know the Lord. They will serve God in obedience to him over what they have come to know and to love, which is God himself. Still, in order for Egypt to come to this requires God's judgment to come against them first. The judgment opens their eyes to the reality of their situation apart from God. And in this reality comes the turning away from their previous fallacies to the truth. We remember the Lord chastises those whom he loves. So he chastises Egypt to bring them to himself. Now, verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now, this short uh, fourth in that day deals with a highway from Egypt to Assyria. A highway implies good relations between these two powers. While at the time of Isaiah, these two nations were at odds with one another, vying for control over their neighbors, Isaiah sees a time when such enmity will cease between the two. The reason for such peace is not because they have come to it by their own imaginations and their own abilities, but because of God. And we see that now in the last in that day, starting with verse 24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. The final in that day shows this to be the case, as Israel, Egypt, and Assyria are brought together. The peace among them is not a curse, but a blessing. The blessing is not from them, however, but from God himself who has blessed them. He has brought Egypt, Assyria, and Israel together. What was once uh, reserved titles for Israel now also belong to Egypt, which are my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. Ultimately, all these in that day references point to one undeniable fact. Though the first half of chapter 19 showed why so many were turned toward Egypt for their what appears to be power, in the end, Egypt and even Assyria end up turning toward God, the God of Judah, and the God of Israel for their salvation, for their peace, for their assurance. As such, why turn um, to either when they will in the end turn toward God you already know? And that's what Isaiah is speaking about here. He's showing that these people are going to turn toward God. Why would you turn towards them to save you? It doesn't make any sense. Now we're going to come to uh, chapter 20. And we're going to do all of it. We're going to read all of it in one shot because it's all kind of connected very clearly. Um, and you're going to see, okay, why, why would Isaiah be talking about this? Why would Isaiah be saying, okay, you know, don't turn toward Egypt. Don't turn toward Assyria. Why is he saying all this? We're going to find out in a very interesting way. 
And the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushites exiles, with uh, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they, will, they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we... How shall we escape? All right. This chapter has some historical significance. Um, We are shown a historical event which takes place around the time of Isaiah, which further underscores the reality of trusting in the nations. In particular, trusting in Egypt for their assurance. In order for this to make sense, however, we need to understand what happened. Basically, Assyria had already conquered Ashdod, one of the northern cities of Philistia, prior to 713 BC. When they had done this, they set up a regent named Ahimiti, who was favorable to Sargon, the king of Assyria. Around 713, however, Ahimiti was overthrown by Yamani, who was more favorable to the Egyptians, whose leader was Shabako. Egypt, believing all was safe at the time because Assyria was dealing with uprisings in Babylon and Uratu to the northwest. So basically, Egypt sees an opportunity. Let's get Philistia on our side. This leads to our text, in which the commander-in-chief of Sargon, whose name was Tartan at the time, came against Ashdod and he captured it. What the scriptures do not reference is that Yamani ended up fleeing down to Egypt. Eventually, Egypt gave up Yamani up to uh, Assyria once Assyria displayed its dominance. Um, So basically, the guy that Egypt had wanted there in the first place ended up being betrayed by Egypt. And that's what happened historically further. Thus, when all this is happening, God told Isaiah to strip off his clothes and to walk barefoot. That Isaiah was wearing sackcloth shows either he is mourning or in some cases it is the normal apparel of prophets. In either case, Isaiah is to strip. We then find that God had Isaiah stripped for three years. For those who originally thought this would be against Ashdod and Philistia, think again. Instead, it is against Egypt and Cush. Isaiah is representing the events which will take place against the Egyptians as eventually the Assyrians will overpower them. This did happen as the Egyptians ended up losing to Assyria by 671 BC. As such, the powerful Egypt will be powerless against Egypt. Assyria becoming naked and hopeless before them. As such, we come to the same problem we have experienced thus far in Isaiah. Where do we turn? For in verses 5 and 6, we learn that the coastland cities, that's Philistia, Ashdod, um, all these cities, they had hoped and turned toward the power of Egypt. But in the end, Egypt was unable to stop Assyria. Thus they wonder, where can they find refuge from Assyria? The answer is, the one whom Isaiah has been proclaiming, God himself, is their hope of refuge. Alrighty, 
So the main point of these verses are to describe the situation in Egypt and their neighbors. Despite Egypt seeming powerful, they're not powerful in comparison to God. Um, When God turns against them in judgment, it causes them to turn toward him in repentance and faith. The once pagan nation will turn toward God and worship him in obedience and faith. This leads to peace between the national powers of the world. Still, the strike must happen. Egypt continued to vie for dominance, but ends up losing to Assyria. Those who trusted in Egypt now must ask themselves, where can they turn for their deliverance? The answer is, of course, God alone. And as another note, too, Egypt, after this point, it was a pretty big world power. After Assyria, though, it ceases to be a very big player on the stage. They end up getting kind of beaten for a long time after this. So it all comes true in the end. Um, One of those did happen already moments was with this. Um, And I'm pointing towards David because, again, there's so many of these. (laughs) When it's, did it happen? Is it happening now? Did it happen? And is it going to happen in the future? A little bit of everything sometimes. (laughs) Um, Sometimes it's already happened. Sometimes it's still happening. Um, Still. All right. What's the application for all this historical stuff and all all this fun? Well, in today's text, we encounter something truly glorious, don't we? We see how there will come a time when even the pagan nations will recognize God as sovereign. Whereas once there was nothing but hostility between all these different nations, because of God there comes a true peace between them. Yet this requires something in order to happen first. Egypt is the main focus of our discussion today. We see how they are greatly chastised before they come before the Lord. The chastisement which comes against them causes them to shake and shiver in fear. The judgment which comes against them, and it comes because of their trust in their false powers, it leads them to encounter God in a way which is altogether magnificent, but altogether fearful. It is no surprise to us that this is the case. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 6, we saw what occurred when Isaiah encountered God, didn't we? His immediate response was not one of joy. It was not necessarily a feeling of great love and affections toward what he's seeing. Instead, when encountering God face to face, Isaiah did exactly what the Egyptians will do. He says, woe is me, I am undone. If we learn anything from the prophets, it's that they continually remind us of God's holiness. The more we consider his holiness, the more fearful we become because he is altogether greater and mightier than any other. His power is unequaled. He is truly far above anything and anyone else, which means he is utterly different from anything in creation. But this fear does not need to lead only to complete and utter terror. In the case of Isaiah, the terror abated when forgiveness comes. So it is with the Egyptians. They experience judgment, but the judgment passes. And when it does, they come to know God as they had never known him before. Thus, the wisdom found here is that though judgment comes, if it brings knowledge of God, then it is a good thing. This is indeed something the prophet Isaiah has communicated to us. And it is something worth considering. Whenever we go through things in this life, the ups and the downs, we can often wonder, where is God? We can also wonder, for what purpose have I needed to go through these difficulties? Oftentimes, we do not understand the reason behind the many trials, the struggles, the failings, and the sorrows we experience in this life. 
Something we can learn from the Egyptians today, however, is that though we should have such trials and struggles, and even though we should, even prior to conversion, contend with God, the judgments and the chastisement God brings to us is purposeful. One of its purposes is the judgment itself. It's true. But another is the genuine knowledge of God. And this knowledge of God leads to our redemption. I can think of one of the most interesting statements C.S. Lewis made on this subject. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis tackled the problem of evil. One of his most interesting lines was, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When it comes to the Egyptians, they were indeed deaf. They had a history with this God, as it was. He was once their greatest foe, who brought them low beneath his judgment. They were his people's greatest enemy, causing them to suffer for generations under the hand of a heavy yoke. They were an idolatrous people, turning created nature into natural gods whom they worshipped instead of the one true God of all. Indeed, they were worthy of judgment, and as such, judgment comes against them because of their unrighteousness. This judgment comes against them from the holy God of Israel, for he alone is worthy of bringing forth such judgments. Yet as we now see, the judgment brought about now is harsh and severe, yet it also blesses. It causes those who were once deaf and blind to God to have their ears and eyes open to him. Thus we can say that the judgment which comes against them is actually good. Indeed, we could even say further, the pain which was inflicted upon them was good, for it led to something greater. It led to them having a knowledge of this personal God, a knowledge which causes them to seek obedience and faithfulness to him because he is so great. The great blessing to come from this pain then is the knowledge of God itself. The question then comes to mind, is it possible that the pain we experience are meant to lead us further into the knowledge of God? And if so, is it possible that whatever pains we may experience, if they lead us to this place of knowing God better than we once did, means that even our pains, our sorrows, and trials are indeed blessings because of the destination God has planned. I suspect that depends on if you truly understand what it means to know God. In knowing God, we have the greatest foundation for all of reality. We have a foundation for meaning, for value, for purpose in this life. We have a foundation for morality. We have a foundation for goodness and love itself. For these things are all rooted in the character of God. To know God is to know these things, to experience these things, and to appreciate them in a way altogether foreign in a fallen world. If the knowledge of God is such a blessing, and if God is capable of bringing a greater knowledge of himself through our pain, then we can recognize the good purpose for our pains. We experience loss while we live. Yet if that loss leads us to understanding and experiencing God more, knowing God more, then the loss we experience really turns into incredible gains. Indeed, finite pains for an infinite God. This is something we find in the New Testament as well. 
When Paul is going through the trials and tribulations, he writes, and this is honestly one of my favorite things that Paul wrote, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. And that's 2 Corinthians 2, 8 through 11. In moments of death and sorrow, what will keep you? Paul and his companions were in such a state. They had become the lowest of the low. They were eager at the coming death. We notice, we despaired of life itself. How could one who was an apostle of Jesus Christ experience such a thing as this? Such an obvious depression. What good could come from that? The answer is in what follows. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. It causes them to know more about this saving God, to experience him in their sorrows and pains. In that experience, they learn to trust in him, to guide them to safe harbors, to the oasis in the desert. A deeper knowledge of God was the direct result of their experience. And when the result is God, such an experience is always a blessing. Thus, this seems to be a reminder for us here today. In Egypt, there would be a pain. But that pain would lead to them to be roused by God to himself. It would lead them from being a people to God's people. So it is with us. We are roused now in the midst of a pandemic. We are roused in the midst of uncertainty with the future. We are roused in the pain and sorrow we experience personally but also the pain and the sorrow we experience in our relationships and in society. The result we should have is a turning toward God in the midst of it all. Though all is faltering, God does not falter. He is the foundation, and on him nothing will ever be shattered. Though we are hard-pressed, we will never break. He keeps us because we are his Whereas once we too were enemies of God, just like the Egyptians were, we are now God's people, blessed through this glorious salvation. So in the midst of all these things, let us continue to learn more about God. Let us trust in the knowledge of God that we have attained and continue to learn more about him even now. For God is infinite, his way is beautiful, and his purposes are always good. Let us trust in him to lead us ever anon and onward to the goodness he has in store for us, knowing that he would not lead us astray. Indeed, let us be roused in these times to know goodness itself, to know God, and to hold fast to his ways. Um, naturally, this leads to the gospel. I mean, I, I find this so fast. Does anyone else find this passage interesting when it when you take it into consideration with Christ. Um, I'll explain a little bit more in detail too. Because uh, it's really, really fascinating. Especially with Egypt of all people. Anyway, um, 
It goes back, though, to our origins, right? Because if God doesn't exist, then I don't really see how we exist. But as it is, we do exist because God exists. God is the first cause. He created all that we see. And it's because of him that we're able to pick up a, a, a musical instrument and play. And it plays the way it's supposed to. It's designed to because God designed it to make music. And we get to experience that music. And we can worship God with that music. And not only when it comes to worship and all these things we experience with our senses. You are created in his image. The greatest of all things that God has created is you and I. A lot of times we think the angels are the highest. Yet the Bible says we're below the angels for now. But we're going to be above the angels How beautiful and glorious a thing that we of all things are created in his image. But that's what makes things that we experience in Egypt so devastating, right? Because they're in judgment. They experience the strike. They experience the pain of sin. The results of sin is always death. And when we sin against God and we sin against our fellow man and ourselves, it leads to destruction every time. And that destruction must be punished. And so we have a problem just like the Egyptians had a problem, is that we deserve the strike. We've sinned against God. We are broken. We have failed. So what can be the result of such a thing? Well, thanks be to God that just as he saved the Egyptians... From their false powers, he saves us from ours as well. And though we should always try to put ourselves above God, he always finds a way to remove those powers. And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time, space, history, and flesh, we find redemption for our sins. And the judgment which he places against us is turned away. So that we can experience the love of God like never before. Now in regards to this. I do think that this passage was partially. Partially anyway. um, Said. For the time of Jesus. Because does anyone know a little bit about church history? When Christianity first started. Do you know one of the places that blossomed most? At the beginning? Egypt. The church fathers, those in the first 300 years of the church after the apostles, a lot of them were from Egypt. A lot of them wrote about God and they worshiped God in Egypt. And it is crazy to think about that God used some of these people for his glory to write about himself. We actually, some of the terms and the things that we know about God is because of all those faithful ones who continued to worship him And Egypt was a very strong location for this. And I see a fulfillment there (laughs) that Egypt really did turn. Now it makes you wonder, okay, what's happened since? (laughs) They're still Christians though. And I think that there's going to come a time when that first flourishing is going to come to bloom. Just like it does here. That's in the future, David. (laughs) We're not there yet. That's in that day. (laughs) In that day to come. And so we rejoice over what God has done. We rejoice in the redemption that he brings to the Egyptians because if he can redeem the Egyptians, he can redeem anyone. Your neighbor, your political adversary (laughs) during these tumultuous times, whoever that may be, 
Those who are so quick to condemn life, he can redeem anyone for his glory. And he has redeemed anyone because he redeems us too because we were once enemies as well. Enemies of the truth. And it's all leading to glory if we should have faith. If we should have faith in God, we too are called God's people. We too are like the Egyptians. If we have faith in God. It requires us to know God though. The question is, has God revealed himself to us? I think he has. Through Jesus. And he's revealed himself through his word. So, as we again go through these tumultuous times, whatever sorrows you may be experiencing, let it cause you to cling to God. There's a reason for it. We may not know the reason now, but it does cause us to at least know God more. And if that's, that should be a good enough reason for me personally. And I know it's hard. It's never easy. But God does have a reason. Let us pray. Father, We thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for what you have done um, through the prophets, why you proclaim the truth through them. We ask, Lord, that the truth would ring true to us. And Lord, as pain and sorrow happen to each and every one of us, let us be roused by it. Let us not be hardened, but let us be seeking you in our dark times that we will experience. Because Lord, you are truly the foundation for peace. And you have offered yourself to us innumerable times. But especially when we focus, Lord, in our hard times on the person of Jesus, the peace is there. So Lord, let us remember your son. Let us remember what you have accomplished. And let us continue to cling to your holy name. For you, Lord, alone are worthy of all that we are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we